What happens when we die? A question billions of people have asked, and once we have the answer, it's too late to pass on the information. True believers of whatever faith one believes in will tell you what they're taught to believe. But does anyone really know? Will there ever be any proof? And maybe you don't need proof to believe what you believe. Some of the world's most brilliant minds have offered their thoughts on the subject of death. American writer Isaac Asimov said, I don't believe in an afterlife, so I don't have to spend my whole life fearing hell or fearing heaven even more. For whatever the tortures of hell, I think the boredom of heaven would be even worse. Plato wrote that the soul takes nothing with her to the next world but her education and her culture. At the beginning of the journey to the next world, one's education and culture can either provide the greatest assistance or else act as the greatest burden to the person who has just died. American writer Henry Miller said, Of course you don't die. Nobody dies. Death doesn't exist. You only reach a new level of vision, a new realm of consciousness, a new unknown world. Death? The last sleep? No, it is the final awakening. That was Sir Walter Scott. Socrates, or Socrates, to anyone not a fan of Bill and Ted, once offered that no one knows whether death may not even turn out to be the greatest blessings of human beings, and yet people fear it as if they knew for certain it is the greatest evil. And then there was Benjamin Franklin, who believed that death was as necessary to the Constitution as sleep, and that we shall all rise refreshed in the morning. I think that, at this stage in my life, I would like to believe that there's more for a person after death. Whether that be hanging out at the pearly gates with the people you've lost in your lifetime, or maybe, perhaps, we get another chance to start fresh. Reincarnation. I heard someone say that the light you see when you die is just the birthing of your new body. 13th century Persian poet Rumi said, Don't grieve. Anything you lose comes round in another form. And Mahatma Gandhi believed that he died every night and was reborn every morning. And that's what we're focusing on in this episode. Could reincarnation be the most plausible answer for what happens to us when we die? There's certainly some stories out there that might make you sit back for a second and wonder. Speaking of Mahatma Gandhi, on December 11th, 1926, an Indian woman by the name of Shanti Devi was born. At around the age of six, she claimed to begin to remember details of a past life. Apparently, her real home was in Mathura, where her husband lived, roughly 90 miles from her home in Delhi. She was able to say that her husband wore glasses and had a big wart on his left cheek. She knew exactly where her husband worked, she knew how she died, and a host of other interesting tidbits. One of the teachers who Shanti had shared this information with located a man in Mathura who fit the description and had lost his wife, Lugdi, nine years earlier, ten days after giving birth to a son. Curious, the man traveled to Delhi, pretended to be his brother in an attempt to trick the young girl, but she knew right away that he was lying. It didn't take long for the man to wholeheartedly believe that she was his deceased wife reincarnated. Mahatma Gandhi set up a commission to investigate the claims. Soon, they were convinced as well. Numerous skeptics and doctors who have studied the case in the years since have tried to debunk the claims but can't. She even gave her husband some grief when she found out that he went back on his word 
with various promises he'd made on her deathbed. There was another case a few years back involving a boy named Sam, who claimed to be his own grandfather, revealing that he knew his sister had been murdered and dumped in a body of water, a story they had never told Sam because it was too gruesome. A toddler who knew he'd written Gone with the Wind. A murder victim who came back to confront his murderer. A man with clear ties to a Civil War vet. A four-year-old former Hollywood agent. And countless others. And these are just the ones people haven't been able to discredit. Let us now focus on an example of reincarnation that really caught my attention. Episode 27, Sisters, Reincarnated. Our story begins with a gentleman named John Pollock, born in Bristol in 1920, and his wife, Florence. John was raised in the Church of England, but later converted to Catholicism. Florence converted to Catholicism upon marrying John. In 1946, while still in Bristol, the couple's third child and first daughter, Joanna, was born. Five years later, after a move to Hexham in Northumberland, Florence gave birth to their fourth child, Jacqueline. Together, the couple built a small grocery business and a milk delivery service that they owned and managed. John and Florence were often busy running their business, so the girls spent a great deal of time with their grandmother, Florence's mother, who lived in the home with them. Despite the five-year age difference, the sisters were inseparable. Joanna mothered Jacqueline, and the younger sister loved it. Joanna was a sweet child that liked playing pretend, and her little sister would often join in. By all accounts, they were lovely young ladies. In 1954, at the age of three, Jacqueline fell and hit her forehead on the rim of a bucket. The accident required stitches and left a scar that began at the bridge of her nose and ran up into her forehead. In the cold weather, the depressed scar would become more pronounced. Let's fast forward now to 1957 and switch gears for a moment to introduce you to another key player in the story, Marjorie Wynne of Horsley, Northumberland. Marjorie, at the time, is a widowed mother of two who lost her husband, Alfred Hurst Wynne, in 1951. She'd done her best to take care of her two daughters, one of which was named Prudence, but recently moved herself north after realizing she was incapable of even the simplest of tasks. When she woke up on Sunday, May 5th of 1957, she decided that she'd had enough and swallowed 14 aspirin along with three phenobarbitone tablets. She hoped it would be enough to end her life. On that same Sunday, Joanna, 11 at the time, and her little sister Jacqueline, who was now six, were walking towards their church for Sunday school. With them was their good friend, Albert Layden, who was nine. Nearby witnesses saw the children walking near a building on the sidewalk and then noticed a vehicle being driven erratically and heading right for them. The children, who were unable to run away due to the wall, never stood a chance. The car crashed into the children and then the wall, sending the three kids scattered into the air like cricket balls, one witness would later say. All three died from their wounds almost instantly. Mrs. Wynne was found inside of her car, confused as to how she'd even gotten into the vehicle. She was taken to a nearby hospital where she admitted that she had attempted to take her own life. More pills were found on her. Now, I should say that there are some reports that Mrs. Wynne driving into the kids was purposeful, 
and an act of revenge for losing her children to her husband in a custody dispute. This is not true. Her husband had died years before. As John and Florence grieved, Marjorie Wynn's court proceedings were beginning. On the Tuesday after the incident, she appeared in court along with a nurse and policeman. She sat slumped over in her chair as the judge went over the case. A bail of 1,000 pounds was set and paid for, but she would only be allowed out of jail if she promised to stay in the hospital and receive mandatory treatment. Her crime was listed as driving a vehicle in a manner dangerous to the public. In October of 1957, her trial began, and the sentence handed down was a mere three years probation under the care of Newcastle Infirmary. The judge was recorded as saying to her, This is a most unhappy case, but I'm satisfied that your judgment and reasoning powers were very seriously impaired by the mental illness you were suffering on that day. Involuntary, acute melancholia was to blame. In the Pollock home, Florence did her best to avoid thinking about the girls, while John devoted himself to doing so. Florence stopped delivering milk for her business and hung up her work smock for good. The girls' clothes and toys were all packed in a box and placed into storage. Despite being a Christian, John believed in the idea of reincarnation, and had from the age of nine when he first read about it in a novel. He'd spent many a night over the years secretly praying to God for evidence of reincarnation so that he may prove himself right and the priests wrong. On the day of Jacqueline and Joanna's death, he claims to have experienced a vision of his daughters in heaven. That was followed by sensing their presence in spirit form in one of the top rooms of his home. As time passed, he would often spend time in that room in order to be close to them. Mr. Pollock said later during an interview that he worried that the girls' deaths had been a form of punishment from God for having prayed for reincarnation. That didn't stop John from continuing to believe in the idea, and he hoped that one day his prayers would be answered by his daughters being reborn into the family. The idea angered Florence, and for a brief period, the dispute threatened their marriage. Early on in 1958, Florence became pregnant again. From the moment John was told the wonderful news, he was convinced that Joanna and Jacqueline were coming back home via reincarnation. The only catch was that neither family had any history of twins, and the doctor told them emphatically that Florence was only carrying one baby based on the fetal heartbeat. Florence was still not a believer in reincarnation and agreed with the doctor that she was only carrying one child. At this point in the story, you might be able to guess where this is going. On October 4th of 1958, Florence gave birth to twin girls, Jillian and Jennifer. Jennifer was born with two birthmarks, one that mirrored Jacqueline's scar from hitting her head on the bucket when she was three, and another in the exact spot that Jacqueline had on her hip. In July of 1959, when the twins were just nine months old, John moved his family away from Hexham to a town called Whitley Bay. According to PSI Encyclopedia, a website that discusses cases involving the psychic functions of telepathy, clairvoyance, precognition, and psychokinesis, as the girls grew older and began speaking in sentences, that's when things got stranger and solidified the idea of reincarnation for John and Florence. At the age of three, John and Florence brought out the boxes of toys that had belonged to Joanna and Jennifer. Jillian quickly recognized the doll that had belonged to Joanna, and Jennifer claimed the one that had belonged to Jacqueline. They both knew that the dolls had come from Santa Claus. 
Then, Jillian noticed a toy clothes wringer that had also been a gift from Santa to Joanna. Apparently, the girls never fought over the toys, knowing somehow which toy belonged to whom. It's also said that Florence would occasionally overhear Jillian and Jennifer discussing the details of the accident. One time, she found the girls role-playing, with Jillian holding Jennifer's head, saying, There's blood coming out of your eyes. John quickly recalled noticing that Jacqueline's head had been bandaged above her eyes when he went to identify the bodies. Furthermore, the parents remembered Jillian once pointing to Jennifer's forehead birthmark and saying, That is the mark Jennifer got when she fell on a bucket. Remember earlier when I mentioned Florence packing away her milk delivery smock? Well, when the twins were about four and a half, John wore the smock to protect his clothing while painting. Jennifer asked him, Why are you wearing Mummy's coat? When John asked his daughter how she knew it was her mother's, she replied, Mother used to wear it while delivering milk, something Florence hadn't done since her daughters died. Around the same time, the family visited Hexham for the first time since the twins were nine months old. While out walking one day, they neared a park which was not quite in sight yet. Jillian and Jennifer became excited and said they wanted to go across the road to the park and the swings and clearly showed that they knew the way to a park they'd never played at in a town they shouldn't have known. Here's audio of John and Florence Pollock discussing the trip to Hexham. From the moment I knew she was pregnant, I believed that the girls would come back. The first thing I noticed when I saw those twins was, we hadn't named them then, but the younger one of the two had a scar coming across her forehead down onto the bridge of her nose, which was the identical scar to the Jacqueline, the younger one of the girls that had been killed, had had when she fell off a little tricycle when she was about two years old. Also, I, mean, I didn't see at the time, but later, my wife said to me, it's an incredible thing, but she's also got the birthmark on her left hip that Jacqueline had. Jacqueline had a birthmark on her left hip, which was like a brown thumbprint. When I got these two <clears throat> dolls out, one said, oh, that's Mary, and that's Susan. And it was exactly the same names as my other daughters had named them. And that was the sort of really turning point in my way of thinking. Well, when we came at the top of Battle Hill, they came over the brow, approaching St Mary's Church, which they couldn't see. One turned to the other and said, well, the school's up around here, which we used to go to, and the playground's around the back. Now, they couldn't possibly have seen any sign of a school or a church even. I mean, they were so small, they couldn't even have seen over the wall. And uh, sure enough, I mean, the school is around the corner. And this was the most incredible thing. And we continued to walk on. I mean, we were absolutely amazed at this. And as we came past the church, on the opposite side of the road is Hexham Abbey and the Abbey grounds. And um, one turned and said, oh, the playground's over there. There's a grave there, but it means nothing. To me, to bring flowers or anything on the grave would be sheer hypocrisy because I don't believe that they're here. I mean, it's just a symbol of two girls that lived that were reborn. More proof of reincarnation, to John at least, came in the form of whenever the twins discussed the accident between themselves, they often spoke in the present tense, as if it had or was happening to them. The twins both behaved in the same way as the deceased girls. Despite Florence now being a stay-at-home mother, they both gravitated to their grandmother, as Joanna and Jacqueline had. Despite being the same age, Jillian acted much more mature and liked to parent Jennifer, which Jennifer allowed. According to the parents, the twins also shared a phobia related to automobiles. 
Cars starting up near them would make them cringe simultaneously. In 1963, a man named Ian Stevenson, who was a pioneering reincarnation researcher, learned of the story through newspaper coverage. He met the family, interviewed them, and examined the girl's birthmarks. In 1967, he met with the family again and continued to keep in touch with them until 1978, before visiting the girls who were now 20. Florence Pollock sadly died in 1979, but Stevenson visited John and his new wife, along with Jillian, in 1982. Stevenson wrote a very detailed case report for the second volume of Reincarnation and Biology. As the story gained publicity in local newspapers and magazines in the 1960s, the Pollocks began to receive hate mail from fellow parishioners of their church who rejected the concept of reincarnation. John and Florence left the Roman Catholic Church shortly after. Stevenson noted that as the twins grew older, the past life memories faded away. John claimed that he never joined in on conversations with the girls when they discussed their past lives. He also stated that he never talked about his belief in reincarnation with them. They were 13 before they learned that. By all accounts, the twins went on to lead normal lives. By the time the meeting in 1978 occurred, the girls remembered nothing of the supposed past lives. They weren't sold on their parents' idea of reincarnation, but accepted their parents' beliefs. In 1981, Jillian experienced some inner visions, in which she saw herself playing in a sandpit with her brothers. She was able to perfectly describe the house, garden, lawns, and orchards that matched the Pollock's house in Wickham. Joanna was only around four when they lived there. Jacqueline wasn't even born yet, and Jillian had never even been to Wickham. Jillian believed she had lived in this house when she was a young child, but John explained to her that she had never lived in the Wickham house in her current lifetime. Now, critics will tell you that this whole story is all a bunch of hogwash. Malarkey. John and Florence either made up these stories or planted the ideas in the girls' heads. British writer Ian Wilson noted that the case is evidentially weak in that the only witnesses to the statements and behavioral signs are the parents, one of whom fervently believed in reincarnation, adding that knowledge of the older sisters might have been available to the twins through normal means. A man named Richard Rockley, who writes for a website called Skeptic Report, believes that since John Pollock believed so strongly in reincarnation, he most likely talked about it with the twins. Furthermore, other family members and friends might have talked about the accident or the deaths. Over his career, Ian Stevenson studied 42 pairs of twins who claimed to remember past lives. In the end, he concluded that the case of the Pollock twins provides, in his opinion, some of the strongest existing evidence in favor of reincarnation. When Joanna Pollock was younger, she had a premonition that she would never get to grow up, telling her father that she will never be a lady. If you're to believe in this story at all, you can be comforted by the fact that she did get to be a lady, in a different body, under a different name. There's the tale of James Leininger, the four-year-old Louisiana boy who believed that he was once a World War II pilot who had been shot down over Iwo Jima. The information he knew, the vividness of his nightmares, the fact that his parents tracked down the ship he sailed on and the name he went by, and everything matched. A four-year-old boy who knew without a doubt that he was a woman named Pam who had died while jumping out of a window during a fire. Too young to Google and too far away from where Pam lived for anyone in his family to know the story. And the list goes on and on. Each story, with its various wow moments, 
as well as things that can be written off as coincidence or fiction. The majority of these cases seem to come about when a child is between three and seven. After that, we begin to lose our memories of childhood. Religions like Buddhism and Hinduism believe in reincarnation. Is it that much harder to believe in than your spirit traveling north towards heaven or south towards hell? So back to my original question. What happens when we die? Maybe we have to live with not knowing until our time comes. Or maybe you'll just keep believing what you believe because it provides comfort for you. That's understandable. What do you believe? Have you had visions or strange connections to someone from the past? Let me know. You can find me at curator135.com or on any of the social media sites. If you enjoyed this or any of my other episodes, please leave a five-star review. It really helps. Until next time, be good to one another and be creative. The world needs you. One, four, three.